Chapter Three, Part A, Women of America by John Rose Laros. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: The Women of South America. As in our retrospect of the feminine history of Mexico, so in our review of the past of the women of South America. It is necessary to begin with a consideration of an extinct civilization, necessary not only to the completeness, but to the interest of our subject, for the chief claim of these chapters to the reader's attention rests on the consideration of those primitive cultures. Were it not for the dead civilizations of the Aztecs and the Incas, with their surrounding independent cultures, there would be but little to say concerning the women of Mexico or South America, for in their later aspects these American cultures represent simply a more or less decadent Spanish and Portuguese civilization, modified indeed by circumstance and the infusion of alien blood as well as custom, yet so close in all material respects to the parent stock that there is but little of variance worthy of note while even the variations from the modern types are most frequently the result of the influence of the dead civilizations which still live in the stock which was grafted upon them though only upon their dead trunks even as for long the history of the eastern coast was that of north america so at first the story of peru was all of true history that we find in the southern division of our continent yet closer in likeness is the story of peru to that of mexico there is the same tale of a high and in many respects admirable civilization overthrown and practically destroyed by spanish lust for gold and yet in some wise abiding in influence upon the race which had crushed it there is the same record of a mild race yielding to the strength of one armed for conquest but in the case of culture of the incas the contrast between conquerors and conquered is still more marked to the advantage of the peruvians for they were even of gentler and more refined natures than the aztecs influenced by a higher and purer religion and dwelling under a system which encouraged and developed the noblest tendencies of human nature there were among the peruvians fewer paradoxes and contradictions of culture than among the aztecs they were not given to even the refined forms of cannibalism indulged in by their northern brothers nor did they include human sacrifice as part of their cult their religion was pure and somewhat simple sun-worship indeed the incas themselves claimed to be children of the sun in other respects there were many points of approach between the civilization of the peruvians and that of the aztecs they might be roughly called cultures of the same class though where there lay advantage it was usually especially in matters which were of the ethical rather than the material cultivation on the side of the peruvians as might be expected in such a state of culture woman held among the peruvians a higher place one that might in a further rough estimate be regarded as equal to the status of woman among the aztecs 
in this comparison however the advantage is again found on the side of the peruvians woman being in some respects in higher estimation among them than among their northern compeers without pushing the comparison indeed it is less dangerous to speak positively let us glance at the chief features of feminine life among the people of the incas in the first place we find that even in the religion of the peruvians woman held a place of honor the sun was the chief personage in the theogony of the peruvians but he had his satellites and among them the most important was the moon his sister and wife in this union of a god to his sister we are reminded of the egyptian cult wherein osiris was married to isis and it is somewhat curious that in both nations egyptian and peruvian wherein there obtained this feature of incest elevated to sacred places there was also the introduction of the same offence against nature in the royal house for both peruvian inca and egyptian pharaoh were given to marrying their sisters that the royal race might be preserved uncontaminated by any alien strain the religion thus acknowledged the status of woman by giving her a place among its deities nor did it stop at this point though as is so frequently to be found in primitive cults it mingled the sacred and the profane in a manner rather confusing to our more complex modern thought the institution of the virgins of the sun was in some ways a most singular reproduction of the roman vestal and catholic nun and in others the exact opposite of the intentions of these european types the virgins of the sun were young maidens who from their infancy had been dedicated to the service of their deity and who when very young were placed in convents here they were instructed by elderly matrons called mamaconas who taught them religious theory and duty as well as the material arts of spinning embroidery and other occupations suited to their sex and situation these maidens were usually selected from those of royal blood or from the daughters of the greater nobles though a girl of great beauty would sometimes be raised from the ranks of the commonality to the high dignity of a virgin of the sun their life was strictly conventual no one but the inca himself or his queen could enter the consecrated precincts without having duties to call them thither chastity was most strongly included and it is said that no lapse was ever known on the part of an inmate of the convents this is not so surprising when the provisions of the law of the incas on this subject are recalled the offending virgin was to be buried alive her lover was to be strangled and the town or village in which he resided was to be utterly destroyed and sown with stones that it might be effectually forgotten it would take an enterprising and desperate lover indeed to dare such results even could he have overcome the difficulties of access and the reluctance of his mistress yet with all this strict regard for chastity on the part of the consecrated virgins it was only while the latter were inhabitants of the cloister that they were so rigorously bound 
Indeed, their destiny was to be brides of the Inca, and thus the whole system was but a sort of sacred concubinage, and it may be suspected that, in the eyes of the framers of the severe law above cited, it was less the offense against purity than that against the Inca that called for such heavy penalties. When the virgins of the sun attained a fitting age, they were, if sufficiently beautiful, sent to the seraglio of the Inca. The number of these royal concubines at times amounted to thousands, and it is not improbable that to the majority of them a visit from the monarch was unknown. They lived in sumptuous seclusion at various royal palaces scattered throughout the country, guarded and attended by the trusted officers of the Inca, until the monarch determined, as periodically happened, to reduce his establishment in this respect, when a large number of his brides were sent away. They did not return to the conventual institutions from which they had come, but to the home of their childhood, where they lived in state befitting those who had been the spouses, even if only theoretically, of the monarch. Nor did these ladies suffer any loss of good repute for their past. On the contrary, they were held in reverence as having been admitted into such close relation with the child of the son. It does not appear whether they were allowed to contract ordinary marriages after their dismissal from the royal harem, but it is not probable that this was permitted to those who might still be termed brides of the Inca, however he might be pleased to dispense with their society for a time. Besides the place of woman in the cult of the country, she had high position in the dynastic as well as domestic polity and customs of the land. Notwithstanding the number of concubines possessed by the Inca, there was but one legal queen, the Cova, whose eldest son inherited the crown. At least so say most authorities, although there are some dissensions. And it is stated by the Incan historian that the succession came down in unbroken line through the whole dynasty. The Cova was always a sister of the ruling Inca, but as to this custom there are also diverse statements, some authorities claiming that it was of comparatively modern innovation, while others assert that it was as ancient as the dynasty itself, which assertion there seems to be but little reason to doubt. The Cova received all due reverence from her people, noble and common, but she had no real authority, however great may have been her influence. The so-called Law Salik was in force among the Peruvians, even though they had never heard of the original hearsay concerning the scepter and distaff. They acknowledged no female rule. At the death of the Inca, the scepter passed to his eldest son by the Cova, provided that the heir apparent had successfully passed through an ordeal of great severity, imposed upon him as the test of his fitness to bear the toil of ruling while his investiture with that which answered to knighthood among the Christian cultures was imposing and wonderfully impressive in its significance. It is commonly said that polygamy was customary among the Peruvians, but this statement may be strongly doubted. 
It is entirely true that the nobles had large seraglios, but when the open concubinage that was a prerequisite, as it were, of royalty, is taken into consideration, together with the fact that polygamy was not known among the common people, it is far more likely that the real custom was that of open and legal concubinage rather than true polygamy. The confounding of nearly related facts in this wise is too common to make us chary of attributing such confusion. Even to this day many well-informed writers are given to stating that polygamy among the Muslims is unrestrained, whereas no Muslim can have more than a fixed and small number of wives, all the other women in his harem being merely legal concubines. Because of this rashness of statement, as well as the difficulty of ascertaining the precise facts in regard to Peruvian domestic polity, we may assume that monogamy was the legal custom, with a recognized concubinage as the privilege of the nobility as well as of the monarch since this theory best consorts with the facts as we know them. Be this as it may, there is no doubt that among the Peruvians, speaking of them in general, and not as divided into classes and castes, domesticity was on a plane fully equaling that known to any of the primitive cultures of America, or even of Europe. Marriage was regarded as a sacred relation, and adultery was considered one of the most heinous of crimes being punishable with death. In this and other places, however, it must be borne in mind that in speaking of the old Peruvian civilization, the word punishable is necessarily used instead of the more positive punished, for it does not seem that all the laws were straightly enforced. It was, for example, a singular provision of this law that made no distinction between adultery and fornication, both being equally visitable by death. Yet there was a recognized, if not legalized, system of prostitution in the cities of the Incas. Such a contradiction of facts cast a very grave suspicion upon the integrity of the whole of the code in which the contradiction appears. And it may therefore be supposed that much of the legislation of the Incas was allowed to remain a dead letter. Still, the tendency of thought among a people can frequently be discovered by a study of their statute book, even if the laws be not implicitly enforced, and we may judge from the laws of the Incas that the people over whom they ruled were straightly moral according to their lights, which is all that can justly be demanded of any people, even the most civilized. The other facts pertaining to the status of women in that wonderful civilization which Pizarro destroyed may be well summed up within the scope of a paragraph. The women of the Peruvians knew a domestic lot which was strongly akin to that held by their Aztec contemporaries. They were reared in affection, though with some severity, and they were early taught the principles of chastity, modesty, and reverence for parents and religion as well as the more material knowledge that enters into the life of the normal woman of cultures. Housewifery, needlework, and certain of the arts pertaining to the household. The Peruvian maiden was well fitted for the responsibilities and dignities of wifehood, 
heir she was allowed to assume that place of honor and the occasion of her marriage was marked by a ceremony so quaint and original that it deserves special mention the peruvian maidens could not choose their own marriage day this was appointed by law and only once did it come in a year so that each twelvemonth there was a season of bridal rejoicing throughout the land those who were desirous of being married assembled on this stated day in the public square of their respective cities and their hands were joined by a cacique in face of the people the simple ceremony together with the pronouncement of the contract by the cake constituted a marriage the gentile system was in some sort in force among the peruvians and no one was allowed to contract marriage with any but a member of his or her gens but this rule was capable of broad extension even to including those residing in the same province the ceremony was followed by festivities lasting several days and the fact of all weddings being simultaneous turned the whole land into a festal place we are not told what was done when some one was so inconsiderate as to die during this period and thus interfere with the merriment of this particular kindred probably the corpse was compelled to wait until its turn came and grief could legitimately take the place of joy however this may be it is certain that marriage was in all ways held in high respect by the peruvians and divorce was almost or quite unknown for the rest the lot of the peruvian woman was practically the same as that held by the woman of the aztecs and does not call for amplification there is however another primitive civilization of south america which calls for notice as being in its way as interesting as that of the peruvians and moreover of greater importance to the present since in some aspects it still survives this was the civilization of the araucanians to adopt the general though not absolutely correct nomenclature while the more remarkable civilization of the early peruvians has centred general attention upon itself among the primitive cultures of south america that of the araucanians was hardly less wonderful in certain aspects though as an absolute culture it was far below the standard of its more northern compeer the araucanians were simply indians but indians of a very remarkable class among the tribes of north america their nearest peers would probably be found among the navajo but the araucanians were in many respects far superior to their brothers of the northern plains they were above all warriors and for long they successfully resisted the spanish invasion they were a free restless brave and highly independent people and far better fitted for survival than their more highly cultured neighbors and this they have proved by resistance to the ill effects of eastern civilization and a persistence unto this day it may be succinctly said that while the status of the araucanian woman was far from being equal to that of her peruvian or aztec sister she was yet held in higher esteem than was usual amongst most indian tribes 
one of the manifestations of the racial instincts of the araucanians is to be found in their delight in that which is generally and contemptuously denoted finery the women as well as the men painted their faces not after the manner of civilization but after that of savagery the colors used being red and black and with pigments of these hues the araucanian belle decorated her face using the black chiefly for emphasis of the eyebrows eyelashes and eyelids much in the manner in which henna is used by oriental women a curious use of the black paint was the occasional depiction of sable tears rolling down the cheeks silver and beads were much worn for silver was almost as common as stone among the aborigines of chile and bright colors were profusely used in the dress of the araucanian lady of social standing the most distinctive part of the costume of the araucanian belle was her headdress and the manner of wearing the hair the former being composed entirely of beads and coming low upon the forehead while it passed over the head and descended quite low on the back the hair was worn in two cues which were wound with bright colored beads the ends falling over the face or striking out in front like horns as among most indian races polygamy prevailed among the araucanians to the women fell the greater part of the work indeed it would not be overstating the case to assert that the wife did all the labor in the araucanian household even to those offices which the indian of the northern continent generally performed for himself yet the women of the araucanians were not ill-treated as a rule marriage by capture prevailed though there was about it also the elements of marriage by purchase the friends of the wooer sought the father of the girl and requested his consent to the match but this was rather a matter of form to even more than the usual extent since while the father was thus being flattered the lover was searching for his bride invading the sanctity of her chamber and plucking her forth by the hair or heels as was most convenient for the araucanian was somewhat strenuous in his wooing he threw her upon his horse and galloped off with her a la lochinvar leaving his friends to sustain the attacks of the women who always rallied fiercely to the defence of the bride the latter made it a point of honour indeed to scream loudly for help and however doubtful may have been her good faith the other women considered it a duty to their sex to accept her protests as implicit and to visit her rape upon the heads of the allies of the lover which allies rarely escaped with unscarred faces having covered the retreat of the ardent swain the friends then followed him to the sylvan haunts which he sought for concealment and from which he emerged some two or three days later with his captive now a willing bride no other ceremony was needful but if the parents of the girl were really averse to the match and rallied in time to prevent the wooer from gaining the shelter of the woods with his captive there was no marriage if on the other hand the thicket was safely gained the marriage could not be afterward annulled after the emergence of the wedded pair from their solitude the friends of the husband called upon him to congratulate him and to offer him gifts 
most of which had been pledged beforehand. These presents were then conveyed in procession to the father of the bride, who, if he considered that he had been paid full value for his daughter, took the bridegroom by the hand and declared his delight at the alliance. The mother, however, was supposed to be so angered with her son-in-law for the robbery of her child that she would not even speak to him or so much as look at him, and though she generally relented, so far as to tell her daughter to ask her husband if he were not hungry, and upon receiving an affirmative answer, proceeded to cook a feast for the assembled company. Nevertheless, for years after the marriage, she would never speak face to face with her son-in-law, though with her back turned to him, she would converse with him with entire freedom. This formal resentment on the part of the mother-in-law seems to indicate a recognized status on the part of matter familias since it was theoretically in opposition to the will of potter familias and therefore in some sense a declaration of independence divorce was known among the araucanians and the discarded wife was sent back to her father's house with full liberty to marry whom else she would but in such case the second husband was compelled to pay to the first the full price which the a woman originally cost him. When a man died, his widow became independent, except where there were surviving sons by another wife, who in such case could claim their father's widow as a concubine to be held in common. This singular custom doubtless arose from the theory of the woman being a chattel of the estate and reverting by right to the heirs. Adultery was punished on the woman by death, while if the outraged husband took the guilty paramour in flagrant delecto, he could slay him without incurring any penalty. If, however, the man escaped, he could not afterward be killed with impunity, but could be made to pay to the injured husband the original cost of the wife. It seems highly probable, however, that among the early Araucanians, female virtue was of a high standard, though among their descendants it is not quite so highly esteemed. A somewhat curious custom still in force among the Araucanians was that of borrowing children. A sterile woman was an object of reproach, as has been the case among all primitive peoples, and she was likely to forfeit the consideration of her husband and to be supplanted by a new wife who might bear him children. It was to guard against this as far as possible, as well as for protection, since sterility was cause for divorce, that the barren Araucanian wife would often borrow from some complacent and prolific kinswoman one or more of her children, whom the sterile wife would rear as her own. The exact status of these children in the household is not clear. They would seem to have been attributed by courtesy, as it were, to the wife, but not to have stood as heirs to the husband, unless in default of heirs of his body, nor even then except by express testamentary act, or that which bore the value of such act on his part. Yet the fact that the custom existed, and still exists, is sufficient to show that it must in some way have assured the position of the barren wife. The Araucanians, by the way, notwithstanding a statement to their contrary by Molinos, 
swathe their children as do most Indian tribes, and even tie their infants to a bamboo frame so tightly that the little unfortunates have no control over any portion of their bodies save for their eyes, and in this state they are hung upon the walls when it is desirable to get them out of the way, an occurrence so frequent that the infants pass nearly their whole existence hung upon pegs like unhappy lairs. One curious Araucanian custom surviving to the present time among many of the tribes is that of giving to each wife a separate fireplace at which she did her own cooking. Of course, this was not practicable where the house was small and the wives were many, but so well was the custom established, in theory at least, that the polite manner in which to inquire the number of wives a man had was to ask him, How many fires do you burn? The houses, by the way, were often shaped much like an inverted boat, and the interior was furnished with a row of cane partitions which roughly carried out the maritime idea, as they had somewhat the appearance of staterooms. These were arranged on each side, and in the middle ran the row of fires around which squatted the ladies of the household. It must not, however, be imagined that only one family, as we understand the word, inhabited one house. On the contrary, each of the married sons had his portion of the paternal roof-tree, and often there were as many as a dozen households under one roof. These matters varied with the geographical position of the tribe, the Indians of the north differing from their southern brothers much as the Indians of the eastern part of North America differed from those of the west, and the household which has just been described was rather typical of those of the south than those of the north, though some of the features were identical in both sections. One of the most remarkable facts concerning the status of women among the Araucanians was that there were medicine women as well as medicine men, and that the former were generally held in higher repute than their male rivals. While this belief in women as peculiarly adapted to the pursuit of sorcery has been prevalent among many peoples, those of white blood as well as those of black, it is rare among Indian races. The civilization of the Araucanians, both past and present, is among the most interesting of the social developments of American origin, and is perhaps the one which has survived in the truest individuality. Little record is found of individuals, but two historical facts may be cited concerning the women of the great Indian race of the South, facts illustrative of the spirit which was inculcated into females as well as males, and born of the indomitable love of liberty, which was the fundamental characteristic of the Araucanians. When Kapolakan, one of the greatest of the Araucanian leaders, in their long struggle against the Spaniards, was at last taken prisoner, his chief wife, on learning of his capture, hastened to his side, not, as might be expected by those of less Spartan culture, to alleviate his captivity with her tenderness, but to upbraid him for his pulsaminity in being taken alive. Coming into his presence, she threw at his feet their infant son, saying passionately and scornfully, 
Melchiaro, titulo de madre del hijo infame, del infame padre. I do not wish to be called the mother of the infamous son of an infamous father. At least that is what she is reported to have said. But as the Spanish is in rhyme, and the chronicler was one rather given to romance, we may be permitted to doubt the implications of the narrative in this respect yet it is most probable that the incident really occurred since it would have been in entire conformity with the fierce pride of the araucanians the other woman of whom araucanian history tells us was called Danacaero. she was the head wife of a chief who was defeated and slain by the spanish invaders as soon as she learned of the death of her husband she organized a band of pulque indians was chosen their chief and sallied forth against the enemy she proved herself a most skilful leader in the peculiar fighting which was appropriate to the terrain she hung on the flanks of her foes as a hound on a clumsy boar alternately fighting and disappearing and even in pitched battle defeating more than one noted spanish general she was one of the most enterprising and dangerous foes ever encountered by the invaders and when at last she was conquered through her affection for her brother who having been taken captive and condemned to death was enlarged on condition that his sister retired to her distant home the spaniards felt that they had won a victory which was most important even though the forces of the amazon still held the field against them there could be no doubt that Janiquero was the most skilful and valiant general and she relieves the araucanian nation from the aspersion of being the only people that cannot claim a national joan of arc to play against the french heroine before turning to consideration of south american women as descended from spanish civilization it may be well to say a word concerning a most singular class of natives of south america one which happily may be dismissed in a few words but yet which must be mentioned for the sake of completeness, the gauchos. There may be a question as to the right of the gaucho woman to occupy even a minor place in a history of the development of woman, for the feminine gaucho has but one individual characteristic. She is dirty, she is slovenly, she is lazy. She is a mere animal, a slave, a beast of burden, but all these things may be found in other extant or past civilizations to give them a term of courtesy and it would hardly seem needful to bring to the reader's attention a peculiar people if the qualities mentioned were the only ones to be found among these women but this is not so for the gaucho woman has a preeminence in one respect she is absolutely the most unmoral woman upon the face of the earth and she has ever been so since her singular class came into recognized existence this does not say that she is immoral her depravity is too open too much a matter of course too entirely a condition of her existence to be deemed immorality it has been said that it is a wise child who knows his own father but among the gauchos it was a remarkable woman who had any assured idea as to the father of any particular one of her children marriage existed as a form of possession 
but as all gaucho women who had reached maturity had families and maturity in that climate came about at the age of twelve whether they had gone through the ceremony of marriage or not it will be understood that few gauchos male or female ever thought of troubling to be formally wedded sir francis head who about the opening of the last century wrote a most entertaining account of his travels across the andes and pampas tells us that if one asked a young gaucho senorita who might be the father of the child that she was carrying she almost invariably and entirely artlessly would reply quien sabe and though lieutenant strain who followed in the footsteps of sir francis some fifty years later contradicted the latter's account of the surliness and fierceness of the male gaucho he did not find it lie in his mouth to defend the virtue of the women such absolute universal and unblushing unmorality as this is worthy of a chronicle and really is hardly shocking since it is so perfectly matter-of-fact that it simply resolves itself into a rule of life alien from our ideas yet on the other hand it is not as the unmorality of the natives of the south sea islands for example where in their primitive state the retention of that which among us is known as womanly virtue was considered a reproach for the gaucho women though so frankly unmoral were yet not thus by religion and custom on the contrary the gauchos were usually profoundly superstitious and were apt to be devout members of the roman communion had they been pagans they would not have acquired any especial claim to renown for immorality by their customs but as members by courtesy of a christian civilization the women of the gauchos deserve to be embalmed in the history of their sex as superlative in their national unmorality mention of the women of the south sea islands leads to another digression from the main subject for there are one or two interesting facts to be told about these women the customs of the tais one of the most powerful of the tribes of the pacific islanders may be taken as typical of others though of course there are points of variance and even departure when porter the captain of the famous essex visited the island of Nukeava, during his celebrated cruise in eighteen twelve he found that the island was governed by a princess named pitney a fact which shows that among the islanders women were held in some high esteem the lady potentate as she was was not above forming a scandalous connection with one of porter's officers though she displayed no fidelity to her temporary spouse but nothing better could be expected of one of a race where the parents urged their daughters to sacrifice their virtue to strangers and even rewarded with presents those who did them the honor to accept that virtue in gift indeed the claims of hospitality require the proffer of the person of wife or sister to the guest while before reaching marriageable age about nineteen very late for such a climate the young girls were given entire license there was marriage among these people though it is difficult to see why and strange to say 
postnuptial unfaithfulness was rare. The married women, as usual among primitive peoples, were rather chattels than slaves, being entirely at the disposition of their husbands. Indeed, save in the matter of unmorality, the customs of the islanders in regard to their women differed but little from those conventional among barbarous tribes. It is now time to turn to a consideration of the women of South America, as we usually think of them, the product of a grafted Spanish civilization, rather than a survival or result of primitive cultures. Yet, when we turn to such consideration, we find but little that is characteristic or even interesting. It is not to Spanish-found countries that we must look for the greatest advances in the status or culture of women. In such lands there has ever been stagnation and even retrogression, while there has rarely been any marked individuality of personal or national trait. Nor must it be forgotten that the phrase, the women of South America, even in the limited meaning of those of Spanish blood, covers an exceedingly broad field. In noting the history of woman in South America, it is pleasant to relate that one of the first of the sex of whom we have record is chronicled as having performed a vast service to posterity even though it were one which would have been done by others had she not been the pioneer. It is recorded that the first wheat ever sown in South America was carried to Lima in the year 1535 by Dona Maria de Escobar, though the quantity was only a few grains. When the crop came to ripeness, the lady called together all her friends to celebrate the first harvest of wheat ever gathered in the new world and although she was in error as to this wheat having been produced in mexico in fifteen twenty eight by a negro slave belonging to cortez who accidentally found a few grains mingled with the rice supply to the soldiers and sowed them she is none the less deserving of being held in honorable remembrance as the benefactor of generations yet to come while speaking of benefactors among South American women, one may be mentioned who is remarkable both for her race and for the form of one of her bequests. This was Catalina Huanca, an Indian, who was so rich, being a cacique, that she left at her death much money to be expended in various charitable bequests, among them being the still-existing hospital of Santa Ana at Lima but the extraordinary bequest to which allusion is made was a sum to be used for forming and maintaining a bodyguard for the viceroy the guard to comprise both infantry halberdiers as the foot then were in such a body and cavalry and to consist of a hundred men it is difficult to say whether this bequest was not a malicious hit at the poverty of the show among the high spanish officials as compared with the state held by the indians in their ceremonials but the viceroy did not care to inquire too curiously into the donor's meaning but preferred to accept with gratitude the goods with which the gods had provided him End of chapter three part a